So once again, I'm going to preach on all three of the readings. Uh, I don't know why I feel like saying this, but all the classes that I took on how to preach, I've ne I never learned anything. <laughs> you know? They tell you what not to do, and most of the time they just simply weren't right. That's one of the things that you always have to keep uh, in perspective about the groves of academe. So I'm going to preach about three subjects which the readings give us. What does it mean to be saved? What is our responsibility regarding how we model God's forgiveness in the world? And how do we deal with the issues of plural views in Christianity and in other institutional settings about what you should and shouldn't do? Episcopalians have sometimes been called the via media, the middle way between continental Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. So I'm going to speak about the via media with regard to how we understand salvation. In the Catechism, uh, in the Book of Common Prayer, the Catechism doesn't ever speak of salvation. It speaks of redemption. And it says redemption is the act of God which sets us free from the power of evil, sin, and death. A more evangelical view of salvation would understand it as the remission of sins, the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and the gift of eternal life received by faith alone apart from works. That's a fairly useful definition, even for some Episcopalians, because Anglicanism was deeply influenced by Calvinism. If there was any uh, reformed view of Christianity that began to hold sway, uh, it was Calvin and Calvinism. The Lutherans had an influence initially, but then Calvin came, and there he was. So... We do not, as Episcopalians, have any confessional understanding of Christianity. We don't have the Westminster Confession or the Augsburg Confession. Some people think that the 39 Articles of Religion, which are in your prayer book, you can look them up when the sermon's boring. Just turn to the book, uh, back of the Book of Common Prayer and you'll be able to see it, see them. But they weren't even in any prayer books until sometime in the late 18th or early 19th century. They weren't reproduced. And they're not really a confessional statement ab about this. Part of the reason is, is that, uh, you know, salvation is not something that is mentioned as much in the Bible as some people think. And certainly the Reformed view of Christianity talks a lot about salvation and its centrality and its importance. But the reason I belabor this is that we read in the book of Exodus today one of the defining salvific events for the people of Israel, and that is the Exodus. It is the liberation from slavery and that the people of God are now moving from 
Egypt in bondage to the land of promise. And so this is the story today about how God's providential work uh, was present with the people of Israel as they moved to the promised land. This is an external corporate understanding of the operation of God's saving work in human history. So most Americans, no matter what religious persuasion you are, have been influenced by the circuit-riding preachers of the 19th and 20th century. We had a parishioner here for some years who was a professor at Santa Clara University. He was their resident Protestant. Martin Smith, I think that was his name, I can't remember. But he went to teach at the War College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, from Santa Clara University. And he said in a talk he gave to the clergy of the Diocese of El Camino Real that we're all Methodists now. Because the whole understanding of how this process works, preaching people to accept Jesus as their personal Savior, understanding the work of salvation as primarily interior and personal, is something that has an enormous influence on the American people. And it's only part of the story. None of that is unimportant or uh, undesirable. All of us need to have also the courage and the willingness to express to others our greatest place of safety and assurance in Jesus Christ. But we also need to understand that God's saving work is something that operates through the processes of human history and that you and I are somehow necessary for the movement of that saving work in the world. That we have to figure out the ways and the means to do that. Years ago, Ronald Reagan had a Secretary of Interior by the name of James Watt, I think. He was a Pentecostal Christian. And he said, you know, here I am, the Secretary of Interior. I don't know why we can't mine the public parks or cut down the trees or do what any of that is. The reason is, is it doesn't matter. It doesn't make any difference because sooner or later when the end of the world comes, we don't need to worry about that stuff. So why should we worry about the whales or the trees? It doesn't mean anything. So don't sweat the details. Well, as my Old Testament professor in seminary said to us, you can believe that if you want to. (laughs) But it's that kind of privatized interior religion that is up to nothing but mischief because it doesn't understand the balance necessary between how we become centered spiritually and how in some way we understand the power and the presence of the Spirit of God God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us as empowering us to be God's people in the world. The priest I began my ministry with in Tucson, Arizona was a buzzsaw. But I remember him saying to somebody once when I first got there, what have you done this week for somebody else?
And when you do those kinds of things, you advance God's saving work. You are faithful to the promises made at your baptism. One of the things I didn't mention is that Episcopalians, like Roman Catholics, understand themselves as a church, the church, and the agency of the church operates through its sacramental and worship life. And we believe that the sacraments have spiritual power and that in some way they enable and strengthen us to be God's people in the world. Not in a superstitious fashion, but in a fashion that connects us with all the other Episcopalians through history who have been doing the same thing. To be the holy common people of God and by virtue of that receive a power outside themselves that they know is not their own. When I became an Episcopalian when I was 19, one of the things that had the most powerful influence on me was that I began, I knew that I had begun to be part of something that was way bigger than me. Way bigger than me. So it started with a, you know, pretty self-centered, arrogant kid who realized that uh, I was not alone and that my own opinions were not the only opinions in the world, and there may be, in fact, things true whether I believe them or not. So that's part of the saving work of God. I've mentioned this many times. We believe that when God's mercy and God's judgment collide, God's mercy trumps God's judgment. And there's a lot of Christian theology around that says, well, you may, you may now have accepted Jesus and you are saved, you're banked home to God, but you must spend the rest of your life walking on eggs to make sure you don't make any mistakes because the whole process can be reversed in an instant. There's a comforting thought. <laughs> you know, some people really like that. They, that's, they, they find that very consoling. They really do. They think that's a good thing. One time at Christchurch Sausalito, when I was the rector there, somebody came out the door after the liturgy and said, you know, Father Brewer, you don't tell us often enough how sinful we are. You want me to do that? No, I didn't think so. And it's not because I want to be an old softy. It merely means that it's incorrect. We are unconditionally loved and accept, accepted and forgiven by God. And the difficulty in the course of human life is that a lot of us have great difficulty accepting that, at least from time to time. And so understanding salvation is understanding the permanence of the presence of the promises of God making themselves real in the lives of people. And in the story in Exodus, those people began to realize that they were moving in a direction that permitted them to see God's processes at work. Moses is one of the great leaders in human history. 
And the reason he is is that he was able to turn the gaze of the people of Israel from the place of remembered good times to a new direction and a new location where they would find a new self-definition and a deeper and fuller understanding of God's uh, plan for them, God's purposes. And so that's how the saving work works. In the Middle Ages, they used to speak of God's judgment as God's opus alienum, God's strange work, and that God's mercy was God's opus proprium, God's proper work. So if you ever get worried or nervous, think about that. Now in Romans today, Paul is talking uh, about coping within the Christian community with plural views about a number of things that were looming large to the Roman Christians and probably Christians in other locations in the churches that Paul founded. And the situation on the ground now was um, more than one thing, but the most important in this reading is um, Christians, remember his audience, are Gentiles primarily, not Jews. Paul is a Jew. But he believes his mission is to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, many of them, had been members of what we might call the Greek mystery religions. And in the Roman Empire, there were a lot of them. And there's actually some churches in Rome that are built right on top of temples of some of these mystery religions. I remember years ago, I was on a scholarship in Rome uh, with the Episcopal Church Foundation. And we were over there for about six weeks. And we went to one of these churches called San Clemente. And in the basement where the temple was, there were fragments of mosaics on the wall. This is a third century church. So you know that it was a long time, a ways before the, the fourth, you know, the, the 300s. And now it's in the care, custody, and control of the Dominican order. And there was a, an, an Irish Dominican who, Father Murphy who took us through on the tour, and we came along on the wall, and there was this fairly large fragment of a mosaic with really just one face, a guy who looked like this. And he says, well, uh, that mosaic there is supposed to be a mosaic of the last judgment, which at least means that nobody was bored. <laughs> so Paul is concerned uh, to, to pastorally deal with people who were Gentiles or part of these religions, and they had some scruple about eating the meat that was being sold in the markets from the sacrifices of these mystery religions, which was a commonplace practice in the ancient world. So you'd sacrifice the goat, and then you'd sell it, uh, the butcher would sell it on the market. And some people felt uh, that eating this meat uh, continued to uh, have made them participate in, in, in a religious expression that they had left. And so they didn't eat meat, they ate vegetables. Anthony Bourdain, do you know who he is? In one of his early books said, Vegans are the enemies of food. <laughs> 
So Paul is saying, you know, here's the thing. Uh, those of you who eat meat, the meat from the sacrifices, it's okay to do this. And in the way it's worded, it sounds like he has sort of a preferential option uh, for, for doing that. But he said those who, who uh, have some scruple about it, maybe making them go back to these religions and who only eat vegetables because of it, that's okay too. And he's talking about something that I mentioned in my sermon last week. And that is matters indifferent. What are the things that really count? What's the core? And what are the things that are indifferent and so different places can do different things? If this were a class on early Christian history, I would tell you that there existed, uh, even from the beginning when Paul started writing, of a core of beliefs that Christian communities throughout the ancient Near East held to be true. But in individual communities, certain practices differed. There were certain things that were done differently. And so Greek, which is the language that they used, used the term adiaphora, which means matters indifferent. And Paul was speaking of this. And also he gives an allusion in this reading to some people that said, uh, to be a Christian, you've got to keep the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath. And others said, no, you need to celebrate the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day, the day of the resurrection, which we call Sunday. And some said, do both. Right? So he said, some people hold all days equal, and some people have days that are special days. And if they do, it matters indifferent. Adiaphora. So what you and I have to do as Christian people in 2014 is to continue to have that conversation. And over, over the time in Christian history, there are some people who have held that certain beliefs, certain practices, certain lifestyles, certain ways of relating to one another have been out and forbidden, and others have said, no, it's adiaphora. It's a matter indifferent. And we need to focus on some other issues that are important. And when you stop to think about it, when Christians start fighting with each other whether or not you can eat meat that's sold in the market that was sacrificed for idols, you don't have much time for mission, do you? <laughs> right? You don't have much time for organizing nonprofits that help people who are on the margins, do you? So it's important for us to remember that. Now, one can expand or extend this reading beyond merely talking about religious matters, but other institutions who have the same difficulty in internecine conflict, and we can certainly talk about it within our families who have great difficulty with plural ways of expressing themselves within the family. And some people think there are just certain things that if they do them, I just can't abide it anymore. I don't want to be around them. So if one of your kids shows up covered in tattoos, that's the end. <laughs> right? Or they got the wrong kind of hairdo or they don't want to do it. That's the end. Right? See, I believe you should be willing to love your children unconditionally. doesn't mean you have to hang around with them. <laughs> right? That's true for other people, too. You know? 
A very wise priest told me many years ago, it's a commonplace saying in America, you know, you have to love everybody. You don't have to like them. You don't have to do that. And Murray Hammond said to me, David, you have to learn how to love your people. And if you try, God will give you the graces to do this. And God will give each one of you the graces to do this. Even if you don't have any immediate plans of asking him out for coffee. Right? Those two things don't piggyback on one another. It's good if you're able to, for sure. But to understand that that's the predisposition. I told you this story. One of my colleagues uh, was uh, sitting in a meeting in her parish. And uh, they were sitting there, and a person in this committee who was uh, particularly difficult was sitting in the meeting in a location in the room where the sun shone through the window on her face. And her face was in repose. You know what I mean? Rest. She was there, just there, without any real expression. And the light shone on her face, and she said to herself in a second, she said, you know, I bet that's the way God sees her all the time. It was just a split second, right? But just this, this look. So you and I should practice that sometimes. Practice it. makes helps us take one another seriously. Paul is saying, if you start down this road of arguing with one another about Sabbath Sunday, about meat, sacrifice to idols, uh, we're going to go nowhere here. We're going to go. That doesn't mean you should not have principles. It does not mean that you should not have convictions. It does not mean that there are certain things that I believe are at bottom the core of Christian belief. And they should be held as true. But at the same time, you and I cannot know the truth completely. We can try to know the truth to keep trying to know the truth I saw a YouTube video yesterday of Billy Graham, who's now in his dotage. And somebody asked him in an interview, he said, do you think Muslims are going to go to heaven? you think Buddhists are going to go to heaven? And Billy Graham, of all people, said, uh, that's not up to me. It's not up to me. It's up to God. You know, I have no uh, hesitancy to say uh, that God loves everyone. So maybe we'll all be together. Then what? <laughs> so in the gospel, Jesus is, uh, tells a story of uh, a king who had a slave... You notice uh, the new translation of the Bible, uh, the English that we use, the NRSV, has the word slave that in the RSV and in the King James Version, the authorized version, was translated as servant. Well, the Greek text says doulos, which means slave. 
So now you're reading what it says. There's been no editorializing. So some of us may have difficulties with this because it appears in this story or this parable that slavery is just assumed, right? It's just, it just is. So here's a king who has a servant or a slave that uh, in the ancient Near East, many slaves uh, owned large pieces of property, had to administer them, had economic resources that they were in charge of and had to administer and so forth. And so he has a slave who owed him, the king, 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents, I can't tell you in, in dollars, but it's like a Silicon Valley billionaire, 10,000 talents. And he says, pay, you've got to pay me. And he said, I can't pay you. He dropped down on his knees. He said, please give me a chance. So he gets his debt forgiven and he doesn't get put into prison. Then he gets up and he goes out and he has a, another minion slave who owes him a hundred denarii, which is chump change, nothing. And he said, I can't pay you. And he grabs him around the neck and he said, I'm going to throw you into jail until you pay the debt. It's always been a big question, hasn't it? How did we get into the practice of throwing people in jail for not paying debts? If we want them to pay the debt, they need out to get out of prison and work to pay it. You know, there's a sort of unclear on the concept. But in any case, after that, the king finds out because some other slaves rat this guy out. And uh, the king is very upset. And uh, he orders the big cheese slave to be tortured and thrown into prison till he repays the debt. Now this has something to do with how we understand sympathy and compassion. And if you and I are the recipients of God's love, forgiveness, and acceptance, then we need to be merciful too. If God is merciful to us, we need to be merciful to other people. And a lot of times, we don't even think about it. We don't understand that that's what, the, uh, what the, uh, is imposed on us, in a sense, as Christian people, to be sympathetic and compassionate towards other people. And that's what Jesus is talking about. This seven times or 77 times, that's part of Jesus and his hyperbole when he speaks the parables. It's, you know, over the top. But it does mean that we need to practice forgiveness and compassion and sympathy for other people and to do those kinds of things. And not, not to return in kind. We shouldn't do that. I know this is easy to say and it's very hard to do. But that's what the Bible teaches in today's gospel. So it's important for us to do that. Uh, this week, understand yourselves to be a part of the saving processes of God. We are cooperators with God in God's plan for the cosmos. And understand we can be instruments of God's saving work as we practice compassion. And know that... Uh, God's world has, is a big tent, and it means there's more than one way to access 
the Spirit of God in our lives, and we should be more tolerant of those plural ways and practice forgiveness, mercy, and acceptance uh, whenever you have the the, uh, possibility to do that. Amen.